starting at the age of, I don't know, three or four, I basically would summer in France with my grandmother and we would do stuff together. We'd go to the market together, we would cook together, we would do the dishes together, we would do everything together. She was also a natural teacher. She's mean as heck, by the way, which all the things I really need. I needed focus, I needed to learn a trade because I wasn't a book learner, and I also needed discipline. And she gave me all these three things, but man, she was one of the meanest women I've ever known, and that's what I needed at the time. So I have a very fond place in, in my heart for her. Welcome to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan. I've got such a special show for you today. No matter if you call her Gigi, Mimi, or Mama, many of you have fond memories of your grandmother's cooking. And some of you have been lucky enough to have learned how to cook alongside your grandmothers. That's also true for some of my guests on Homemade. Ms. Patty LaBelle, Rachel Ray, Marcus Samuelson, and others have shared wonderful memories, recipes, and some really funny stories on previous episodes that I thought you'd enjoy hearing. Let's dive into how and why our grandmothers are so important to our love and appreciation for home cooking. First, we'll hear from All Recipes All-Star Jesse Sheehan, the author of Icebox Cakes and The Vintage Baker. She dove deep with me into her grandmother's lemon velvet sheet cake recipe and how she eventually learned that even grandmothers have secrets and sometimes the best things do come straight out of a box. I know this lemon velvet sheet cake that you have on the All Recipes site is one of your favorites. And it's got a funny story. So the funny thing about me, just a little backstory, is that I did not grow up baking. I didn't have a mom whose apron strings I was holding on to from one year old or climbing on a, a, a stool to whisk something with her. I didn't really come from a baking family. But my father's mom, my paternal grandmother, did like to bake. However, I wasn't interested in kind of learning from her. So when we went to visit her, I was extremely excited for her. She made these miniature Toll House cookies that I love. And she made chocolate cakes that I loved. And she made challah bread, which was delicious. But what I really loved was her lemon velvet sheet cake. And that was kind of a departure for me because I'm not really a lemon person. I'm very much a chocolate person, but loved this cake. It had this delicious kind of glaze that shattered when you bit into it because it hardens like that. It was just to die. And many years later, after my grandmother passed and I began to be interested in baking, I thought, oh, I want to see her old recipes. So I contacted my cousin, who was older than me and who had always loved baking. So she had all my grandmother's recipes. And I said, Rachel, you got to send me the lemon velvet sheet cake recipe. I'm dying to make it. It's going to be so fun. I have this brand new blog. Can't wait to put it up there. You know, please help. She sends me the recipe. And the first ingredients is a box of lemon velvet cake mix, which is either Betty Crocker or Duncan Hines. I don't know which one. And it was such an amazing aha moment, I have to tell you, because I loved box cake mix. I always have... I always will. On my birthday, I have my sons make me like a Betty Crocker or Duncan Hines chocolate cake with frosting from a can. Well, I don't think there's any shame in that. So you have since perfected a different version of your grandma's lemon velvet sheet cake, and you shared that with us for one of your recipes on All Recipes. A hundred percent, because even though I do love a boxed cake mix, I kind of also appreciated the challenge of taking this recipe of my grandmother's that called for one and trying to replicate it. And I joke, but really I'm being serious. My goal in every cake I develop is to try to make it taste like a boxed cake because that's the flavor I love. 
former co-host of The Chew and Top Chef alum Carla Hall peeled back the flaky layers of her approach to biscuits for us and shared a story about her grandmother's cast iron skillet. So let's dive into the biscuit recipe. I know you got a granny that was an amazing cook, Freddie Mae, right? Yes, Freddie Mae Glover. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is this Freddie Mae's recipe or somebody else's or yours or a combination? It's a combination. It was taken from Freddie Mae, granny. And then when I was in London, I grabbed a scone recipe and tweaked it because it was heavier without buttermilk. And then I've just been tweaking it over the years. It's more my granny's than anything else. And I've changed the method. The recipe itself is fine. I changed the method to make it more consistent. I had to change my mama's just a little bit too. The thing I changed about my mother's biscuit recipe is that my mother didn't laminate it or fold it over and over and over. She basically got it all pulled together, folded it over once, and then roll that sucker out and cut it out and throw it in the pan. And, you know, she had four kids. She didn't have time to fool with. But I figured out that although most people say you don't touch a biscuit dough very much, I found out that if you kind of laminate it almost like puff pastry or croissant, you get a flaky layers. You do? Yeah. That's what I started doing. Me too. I laminate my dough. And that's because when the butter is cold, it has water in it. So when you do those layers, so now you have, depending on how many turns, you may have nine layers. I do three turns. And then that cold butter creates steam. And then that creates the layers and the tall biscuit. It is delicious. The other thing that I do for consistency is I grate my butter. I do too. Right? Oh my God, Barty. We are so made. Why aren't we making biscuits right now? I know. Oh girl, let's do a big biscuit party. Come on. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Let's find a place and do one. I mean, we even have, what time is it? It's biscuit time. What time? Is it? It's, it's biscuit, biscuit time. time. Time is it? It's biscuit it's time. It's biscuit time. That's what's up. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm so ready. I had my grandmother's cast iron skillet. How wonderful. I remember this like it was yesterday. I was in New York. I was making a dish that Michael Simon had done on the chew, and it was this warm mushroom vinaigrette. So I had sauteed the mushrooms, and I was putting the olive oil and vinegar in the pan, and I was like, where's the liquid going? And the pan cracked. Cracked. Oh, I've heard of that recently. Only in like the last month have I even heard of that ever happening. I wonder why. I think it's because the pan was so hot for the mushrooms. And then I put in the vinegar and not the oil first, right? And I was starving. When I started doing this, I was starving. And I sat there and I looked at the pan. And when I realized what was happening, I was like, no. And I and the tears just flowed because it was almost like I was just losing this thing of my grandmother's and I can't cook in it anymore. I still have it. But it was so emotional because when you talk about your mother's meatloaf pan and the rolling pin and the connection that we have and what is almost like this talisman of making that dish, right? True. And when you don't have it, you're like, oh my God, can I... Can I still cook? It's like my magic. Right, right. Exactly. Host of the PBS program, No Passport Required, Chef Marcus Samuelson was born in Ethiopia, but he grew up in Sweden. He told me all about the sounds, the smells, and the sights he remembers from his Swedish grandmother's kitchen. You walk into my grandparents' house. To the left, my grandfather was sitting by the radio, listening to things. Not really watching TV, always to the radio. Commenting back to the radio. Screaming at the radio if he was upset. And then you walk into my grandmother's place, which was really the kitchen, which was really 70% of the house, where there was always a stock or broth cooking, smelling in the back. 
there was always a bread to be made. So there was dough somewhere. Right. She was cleaning something, whether it was chicken or fish. Vegetables were everywhere. Fruits were everywhere. We either had to go out and pick it or we had to clean it or we had to go foraging for lingonberries or mushrooms, depending on what season it was. And then, of course, in the basement, it was the labeling of all the jars. And it could read something like lingonberries, October 1981, pickled mushrooms, September 1982. And when you had your job to bring those jars back up, you better bring the right season. And in, in Sweden at that time, you know, it was different. This food, this basement, was kept in if the Russians would come, which was really real. Yes. Right? This was real. It was not something that, uh, you know, you almost can laugh at today. But no, this was happening. This real cold for fear. Yes. So that's how I grew up with fresh food. Our steak was cod or halibut. Our second day meal was very often a fish soup or fish with fish dumplings. The meat that we had was meatballs, was grounded meat. And if we ever had steak, it was pork. I want to know about fish dumplings. What was mm -hmm. that like? Tell me about that. Oh, oh, fabulous. So it was really scraps of cod or halibut or whatever fish that we had back that you had to, after cleaning the cod, you scrape it and you get all that. You get this bucket of beautiful fish meat that in a restaurant today would be used for tatars or be used for other treatments. And that with a little bit of butter or some type of fat get mixed up, very often filled with breadcrumbs. So eventually the way someone makes meatballs, it's the same type of structure, a little bit of onion, a little bit of breadcrumbs, a little bit of that farce meat, and you roll it and you could either boil them Okay. Or you fry them. Like, so dumplings, essentially. Dumplings, exactly. And then they were served with, we always had potatoes. They very often got sweetened with an apple <sighs> or a pear. And that got mashed. Right. My grandmother maybe had a carrot ready or horseradish that we grinded in. And that would go in the mashed potatoes. That goes in the mash, right? Oh, that sounds good. Oh, it's delicious. And then she made the gravy from the, where we seared the fish, the dumplings, very often with pickle juice from the cucumber. She took the pickle juice, milk or cream, whatever she had, thickened that up with a little bit of flour. In her later days, when she got hip, she even added soy into that. That came really? in the later days. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> this is what she's seen on TV. Yeah, she was you know? doing fusion yeah. cooking before there was fusion cooking. Way before. Way before. I think all of our ancestors, you know, they did what they had to do. And you know, wanted to be creative, too, in the kitchen, just like we are, where they wanted to try something a little bit different, a little bit unique. My grandmother was completely in favor of child labor. I have to say that <laughs> first out. So, like, if you, you know, when you're seven or eight or ten or whatever, if me and my sister went to my grandmother, it was full with awareness of we working. I never remember playing with my grandmother or my grandfather. It was full-on work. I set the bike, I ran up the 15 stairs, and I was sweaty because I was probably bike racing with my sisters. But once you entered, you were actively working. So it wasn't a place where I brought my friends necessarily, but I also was there because you always got great food. so thrilled to talk with Grammy-winning music and culinary icon Miss Patti LaBelle, who, as a grandmother herself, 
told me about her famous pies and what she loves to cook for her own grandkids. Tell me a little bit about like secrets to that. Your pie crust, for example, was this something that you had to teach yourself, your grandmother or your mama, daddy taught you? My mother and grandma, they, they made the ones with the uh, crust crust. If sometimes if you don't have time to make a crust, you buy a crust and you can add anything to your crust, more butter or whatever. So I do it both ways. And every time you make a sweet potato pie, you add a little something and sometimes you don't. It's like an experiment every time I do pie. If I was hanging out at your house with you and your kids and your grandkids, Mm -hmm. what are they asking for? What is the number one thing that they want every day? My little babies, they love my macaroni and cheese. They eat macaroni for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And my son and his wife, they uh, eat whatever I cook because my son has a great skill of cooking also. So he's been doing a lot of the cooking. Like he'll take my recipe and say, oh, no, mine is the way you make it. Yeah, right. He steals my recipes, but he does it well and respectfully. <laughs> and then didn't you use some of your grandmother's recipes, like the pie recipes? And- oh, you got that right. I mean, that's how you do it. You pass it down. Yeah. That's why I really wanted to have you on this show, because for me, the stories, the backstories, it's like music, isn't it? Yeah. When you eat something, it takes you to a place in time. It's an ingrained memory of something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's so important for us to pass these things down to our kids and our grandkids oh, yeah. and make sure these family traditions continue. Stay in the family forever and always pass it on. Stay tuned for more from Rachel Ray, Jet Tila, Angela Sackett, and Claudine and Jacques Pepin. We'll be right back after the break. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam where wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to Homemade. Like Patti LaBelle, who we heard before the break, Chef Jacques Papin is also a grandparent. We discussed how he's passing on what he knows in the kitchen to his granddaughter, Shori. Plus, Jacques' daughter, Claudine, shared some favorite memories of spending summers in France with her grandmother. Claudine, do you remember your grandmother? Do you remember cooking with your grandmother? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Starting at the age of, I don't know, three or four, I basically would summer in France with my grandmother and we would do stuff together. We'd go to the market together. We would cook together. We would do the dishes together. We would do everything together. She had this really cool garden. So you'd walk out the back door and there was a ground level patio and you'd walk upstairs and there were two sides to the garden and then a really pretty lawn and stuff. And it was really fun. And she would have a garden up here. And if it was the right time of year, we would go and dig potatoes And she would just like rub the skin off and put it in a skillet with butter. And I promise you, you have never had anything better in your whole life. Just 
right out of the garden, a little potato that's this big, sauteed just right in butter. And oh, it was so good. And a, and a steak, like a super, super thin steak. And my grandmother liked her steak rare, but like rare, like you might still need a fork to catch the steak because it was still moving. Right. So <laughs> we, would, we would have a super rare steak and these potatoes and a green salad. And it was just, it's still like one of the best meals ever. And now, Chef, you do the same thing with Shori, your granddaughter. You take her to your garden, you cook with her, you have her in your kitchen. Yes. I mean, certainly when she was small, but I did the same thing with Claudine when she was a couple of years old. I hold her in my arm and she stirred the pot. As long as she stirred the pot, she, quote, made it. So she was going to eat it. So you have to get the kid involved. So when Shore was small, uh, I had a little stool next to me at the counter in the kitchen. Not now, because now she's taller than me. But... Uh, <laughs> At that time, she stood there and I said, okay, give me, a, give me a spoon, okay, give me that, help me wash the salad. Okay, take her to the garden. I said, get me some parsley. No, that's chive. Taste it. No, that's parsley. That's chive. That's tarragon. And then take her to the market. And in the market, they get me some pear. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell them? You think they are ripe? Those tomatoes, you think they are ripe? Come back to the house, then she helped me in the kitchen. So, you know, that created a background against which we start talking, not only about the food, but then, of course, when we enjoy the food, sitting down together, and that created a conversation. Because very often, what do you talk to a teenager who has, a, you know, an iPhone in their hands and so forth? For us, cooking and the kitchen itself has been a canvas onto which we can develop conversation and talk about. So the structure of the family is very, very important for us. And this is done very often in the context of cooking, the kitchen, and so forth. You know, I garden also, and my father and my mom did, and I always feel like kids were more likely to eat the food if they had a hand in either growing it or cooking it. Yes. You know, I have given classes in part of the country where the kid thinks that uh, a chicken is rectangular with plastic on top. It doesn't have any feet, doesn't have any head or anything like this. So, you know, it's good to go back a bit to modern nature. All recipes all-star Angela Sackett had two distinctly different grandmothers growing up. And in this clip, she says that of the two, you might be surprised whose cooking she remembers the most. I was primarily raised by a single mom. And then I had, I'll really say, three grandparents who had a ton of influence on me in the area of food. The Southern Grandma, Kentucky, Tennessee, pot roast, fried pecan pies, you name it. And there was always 10 times more than the family could eat on the table. A little bit of stress associated with it, though, because she did it all by herself and nobody was allowed to help. And uh, another grandma that was more a gourmet chef cook. Oh, she's glamorous. Had her own TV show and all those good things. (laughs) You had a grandma with a cooking show? Oh, girl. It was like a variety show, from what I understand. Musicians, she was friends with Bob Hope, you name it. What a life, right? Well, how (laughs) exciting and glamorous is that? So you were influenced by your Southern granny who probably did the full Southern. I see where she would cook you a full Southern breakfast. Oh, you know it. So what was it? Like eggs and pancakes and bacon and sausage. Oh, yeah. Plus the grits or the cream of wheat and the gravy. And we always had on the table. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
And then either, uh, well, usually both sliced tomatoes and whole green onions that you would just eat. We hold them in your hand and eat them with your breakfast. Did you do that? Yeah, I was just talking about that yesterday to my nephew. I made lunch for my nephew yesterday. And I was just saying, you know, when my mother would set the table, if there were tomatoes, there were also green onions. Okay. She called them spring <laughs> spring onions. So, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, had, uh, I was dicing up a couple yesterday to put in some chili. And I was telling my nephew that story. And I need to research that and find out where that comes from. Because if there were sliced tomatoes, which often was a vegetable for us then there was absolutely spring onions on the table with it so, <laughs> it's a thing yeah we gotta find out the roots of that yeah we sure do so you had this glamorous granny who had a variety <laughs> show and then you had a southern granny who was making you grits yeah. and biscuits well how wonderful of that tell me your favorite memory of one dish that you remember from your grandmother what did she cook for you that was your favorite thing that you look forward to more than anything? You're going to laugh, but actually it's the glamorous grandma that comes to mind first. And that is she used to make this dish called ramaki. You ever made yeah. ramaki? It yeah. was chestnuts, I think, wrapped yes. in bacon. bacon. And then, yeah. and that was Christmas Eve every year. The whole family would come on Christmas Eve to that grandma's house. And she had all the little fancy things. That's the first time I ever had hearts of palm. Those would come straight out of the can and onto the plate. That was the big life we thought. <laughs> So this was in the late 60s, early 70s, I'm guessing, because those kinds uh, of things. More like late 70s, but that was that had held over. Yep. Yeah, those kind of dishes were big in the oh, I would yeah. say late 60s through the 70s. Those little pickup, you know, cocktail-y things were yep. substitute for cooking yep. sometimes. Well, that's funny. Rumaki would be the thing that came to mind. Isn't that hilarious? I will say this to that same grandma also made, she called it seven cheese macaroni. But it really just depended on how many different cheeses struck her fancy when she went to the grocery store and she would cut them all up in cubes and shake them in cornstarch and layer it and you poured milk in. And to this day, that is the dish that my kids will ask for when they really want to splurge on a holiday is Grandma Rose's seven cheese macaroni, which might have 12. It might have five, you know, or but. two. Yeah, or two. <laughs> In this clip, Los Angeles-based chef, cookbook author, and Food Network personality, Jet Tila, grew up in a restaurant family. He explains how his grandmother was his primary caregiver and practically raised him in the kitchen. Tell me about cooking in the kitchen with your grandmother. Yeah, I'm going to give you the real answer, you know, I mean, uh, and not the romanticized answer. Although, so she absolutely was the most formidable influence in my cooking life, for sure. So at about the age of three, I had a lot of intentional issues as a child. I was a very difficult child. And she, I think, understood that I'm not going to learn much from books and math and reading. So she stuck me in the kitchen with her right next to her hip at three years old and just focused all that crazy energy I had into tasks. So peel oh. this, cut this, taste this. And then peeling becomes cutting, cut this, and that becomes cooking this. And we would have field trips every day. She was my primary caregiver for a long time. And we'd get on the bus to Chinatown and we'd eat dim sum. We'd go to grocery shopping and she'd play mahjong for a few hours. And then we'd come home and we'd dinner together. Wonderful. And over the course of thousands of meals and thousands of lessons, she was also a natural teacher. She's mean as heck, by the way which all the things I really need, I needed focus. I needed to learn a trade because I wasn't a book learner and I also needed discipline. 
And she gave me all these three things, but man, she was one of the meanest women I've ever known. And that's what I needed at the time. So I have a very fond place in in my heart for her. Absolutely. I can say absolutely why. And I think all of us need that. You ever watch the Disney short bow? You should really watch it. It's about this kid who goes with his mom, but it wasn't the touchy feely soft version. It was the tough, what I needed version. So tough love is the most important love sometimes. So I agree make with her like there's something you make now that is something inspired by the those days in the kitchen with your grandma my grandmother was cantonese and what i people don't know that cantonese chinese people eat soup with every meal it's a tradition where you would make a soup and you'd probably make like a stock like either pork stock or chicken stock primarily and she was a master of making soups so she would roast the bones and roast, um, you know, the, the air. Well, I didn't know what aromatics were. I mean, of course, until I went to culinary school, right? So she would take daikon radish and ginger and all these things. And so I made a very simple pork and um, winter melon soup just a few weeks ago. Because, you know, COVID, this lockdown gives us a lot of anxiety. And I think I just needed a little piece of grandma's soup. I think you and everybody else had bought up all the yeast during the pandemic. Everybody was looking for that. <laughs> everybody was looking for that, Jet. Right. Everybody wanted that touch of home and that sense that, hey, it's going to be okay. Yeah. So tell me what it was again. It was basically a lot of Chinese soups are pork stock based. So okay. rib bones or neck bones, you roast those off to make a dark stock, a brown stock. Add some daikon radish, which is an aromatic, some ginger and garlic, which is an aromatic. You cook that down for a few hours, and then you finish soup with the final flavoring, and it's usually a vegetable. And I used winter melon. Have you ever used a winter melon? It's, it's a gourd. Never heard of it. Imagine the sweetness of zucchini multiplied by 10. Okay. It's got that earthy sweetness. So basically, the final product is just a bowl of soup with riblets and winter melon. And it's a very simple soup. You eat it with rice. Like yesterday's rice put into soup makes a rice porridge of some sort. So I love that. I always put rice in my soup. I always do. And, you know, I always wondered why at every single Chinese restaurant you ever saw, there was always two or three soups. And so now I know. That's it. Cantonese Chinese, we eat soup with every meal. And finally, to wrap up this episode of Homemade, Rachel Ray told us her grandfather was actually a gigantic influence on her love of food. She also described the life lessons she learned from him about appreciating everyday blessings. All right. So, Rachel, you've talked a lot about growing up in food and one of your first memories watching your mom in a restaurant kitchen. Our listeners would love to hear more about growing up in a family with so many good cooks in the kitchen. Well... My mom's 85 and she worked in restaurants for 60 years. Wow. And when I was a little girl, my first memory was being on her hip and she had turned on the flat top, the griddle. And she was fighting with one of the purveyors and phones had cords then. So the part you're talking to was attached to the part that was on the wall. Right. She had gotten so whipped up, she was spinning around and around in circle. So she had to unwind and put me down because I was on her hip. Right. She went to hang up the phone. I reached up to grab at a spatula to mimic her because she was always in the kitchen. And I grilled my thumb to the griddle. Mm -hmm. And that's my first memory in life is that uh, people, of course, can't see it because this is audio, but the scar on my thumb is kind of like my Harry Potter stamp for what would come. 
And when I was even younger than that, when I was at home, my first caretaker was my grandfather. And my grandpa had 10 children. My mom was the firstborn, the eldest child. And her responsibility was to help grandpa. And his primary responsibility was growing the food. And he was the cook of the family. My grandmother was the seamstress and the baker. And grandpa also worked 80 to 100 hours a week as a stonemason. Really? So he would tend his gardens literally by moonlight. And he would process and make all the food and then put it into his big wood-burning oven when he'd go to work and pull it out when he'd come home to check on the kids. And then he'd go back to work. I mean, he was an amazing man. And he was my best friend when I was little. He was my nanny, really. He was my, the child caregiver, you know. Isn't that amazing? I never got to meet any grandparents. It's so amazing that you have that legacy and that memory. What is one of your favorite dishes that your grandfather would make that you still make? Everything with fish that I make. My, it's very funny because my mother, she doesn't mind anchovies melted into oil, but she really doesn't like fish the way I like seafood. Grandpa would play cards with the Runzo boys, and I would sit on his lap, and they'd play Treset, Three Sevens, or Scopa which means to sweep. It's a card game, too. I'd sit on his lap, and he'd play cards with the Runzo boys, and we'd have sardine sandwiches with onions. And I love sardine sandwiches with onions, and I love spaghetti, aglio with tons of anchovies melted into the spaghetti. I love sardine spaghetti. I love puttanesca sauce, of course. All of those dishes remind me of him because that's part of the time that we shared together. And I write about that in my last book. I wrote a book when I turned 50, and there's a... Yeah, I have it. It's a great book. Thank you. There's a chapter called Sardine Sandwiches, Don't Making Friends. So on my first day of school, I took a book. The teacher took it away because the other children didn't know how to read yet. And they took away my sardine sandwich. What? <laughs> and bag at lunch and I took it out of the bag and everybody made fun of me because it smelled. And I, <laughs> I went home hysterical crying. And my grandfather basically made fun of me and said, you have 10 fingers, 10 toes, and a brain. He made me count my fingers and count my toes, knocked on my head and said, what's in there? I said, my brain. And he said, well, you have 10 fingers, 10 toes, and a brain. What are you crying about? And that's an important lesson to learn in life, to, you know, save your tears for when times truly deserve. You really need them. That's right. Like now, so many people are upset about having to be at home. And I mean, I can see why, especially if they've lost their jobs, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I hear a lot of people kind of whining about having to be at home. And to me, I think it's almost a little bit of a blessing because I'm doing so many things I never get to do. You have to try and make it into a blessing. I think blessings don't just happen. I'm sure some do by fortune or divinity or good juju in the universe or karma or whatever. But I think a lot of blessings, you can also kind of make a fertile environment for them. Wake up with a positive attitude, challenge yourself to do something that you've never done before. Look at things in a slightly different way and try and find something to be grateful for as early as you can in your day, every day. Thanks so much for tuning in to our special grandmother's episode of Homemade. I hope it helped you recall memories in your own grandma's kitchen, and I hope it will encourage you to write down those cherished family recipes and stories. You'll be so glad you did someday. 
Coming up on the next episode of Homemade, actor and five-time Emmy Award nominee Jesse Tyler Ferguson from Modern Family joins me to talk about his new cookbook, Growing Up in New Mexico, and how he discovered his love for cooking. I remember wanting to tackle my first Thanksgiving dinner after I moved to L.A. and getting in way over my head and really wanting to do everything. I did not want anyone bringing anything. And We've it, all done it. We've all done it. You do it once and then you realize that doesn't ever need to be done again. I do love entertaining and it's been a joy to feed my family, feed my friends. It's how I show my love to people. I had such a good time talking with Jesse. Didn't you just love his character on Modern Family? Subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it. And please, we'd love your feedback. If you could, rate Homemade and leave us a review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with digital content director Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Jim Hankey, Maya Croft, and Erica Wong. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.